Awesome. So we're going to talk about Joshua today. And uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, which meant he had no parents. And uh, <clears throat> actually, we'll find out what that, that, that was his dad's name was Nun. <laughs> so we'll find out what that means uh, in just a moment. But Joshua, uh, his story, you can't talk about Joshua without talking about battle and war and fighting and uh, possessing new territory. And so that's kind of what we're going to talk about today, that on some level, each one of us, we're, we're born to battle. We're born with some fight in us. We're born with a desire to kind of take new ground and take new steps, not to settle in our lives. And yet, sometimes we find ourselves settling and we find ourselves kind of wandering. And so I'm hoping that God will provoke all of us to see the new ground that God's got for us and to be willing to fight for it. And when we talk about fighting, we're not talking about a a culture war. We're not talking about fighting uh, the world that we live in, but we're talking about fighting for the good things of God in our lives so that we can pass those on to others, that we'll receive God's promises and his blessings so that we can bring blessing and goodness into our world and shine the light of our Father to hurting people all around us. So looking forward to it. Uh, as I was getting ready this week, I, I found a great story, and uh, I thought it was really a, a great way to kind of kick off uh, our talk this morning. I thought maybe you'd like it. So it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was an officer of the Royal Navy named Captain Bravado, who showed no fear when facing his enemies. And one day while sailing the seven seas, he spotted, or his lookout spotted, a pirate ship approaching and the crew became frantic. Captain Bravado bellowed out, bring me my red shirt. The first mate quickly retrieved the captain's red shirt. And while wearing the brightly colored frock, the captain led his crew into battle and defeated the mighty pirates. That evening, all the men sat around the deck recounting the triumph of earlier. And one of them asked the captain, sir, why did you call for your red shirt before battle? And the captain replied, if I were to be wounded in the attack, the shirt would not show my blood. Thus, you men would continue to fight unafraid. And all of the men sat around and marveled at the courage of such a manly man's man. As dawn came the next morning, the lookout spotted not one, not two, but ten pirate ships approaching the crew stared in worshipful silence at the captain and waited for his usual orders. Captain Bravado gazed with steely eyes upon the vast armada arrayed against this ship, and without fear, he turned and he calmly shouted, Get me my brown pants. Yeah, that was a good, good kickoff story. So, we are in uh, what is called in church tradition the season after Pentecost. Three Sundays ago, we celebrated Pentecost Sunday, and we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit that has come upon the church to be witnesses in our world. And as I thought about Pentecost this week, and I was looking through the lectionary, which is kind of the readings that the church practices throughout the church season, I was caught up by a reading in one of the lectionary readings in Jeremiah 2011. It said, but the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. 
that God's with us, that God himself is like a warrior. And it says, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail, Jeremiah says. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. That God is like a warrior who's with us in battle. And then I thought about 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 12. Paul writes to young Timothy, this young pastor, and he says, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. That your fight is not against, as he described in Ephesians, not against the things of this world or the people of this world, but it's a fight of faith that we're engaged against principalities and powers and might and dominion, forces of darkness, that our fight is a, a fight of faith to trust in God to believe God, that he's bigger, that he's stronger, that he's more powerful than any force on this earth. We're called to fight that faith. You know, the, uh, the early church fathers loved this story of Joshua. They, they loved it for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons was because of the bigger picture that we see in this story. And for those of you that maybe didn't grow up in church or maybe this story isn't real familiar, I'll just kind of give you a quick, quick synopsis. God called Moses, who was one of his prophets, one of his mighty men, and raised Moses up to deliver all of God's people who were caught under slavery and bondage in Egypt to come out of Egypt, to come out of slavery, to have their own nation, to have their own land. And he promised to give them a promised land. And he would lead them there. And so Moses went and he called uh, the people of God together. And through many, many miracles, uh, God delivered them out of that land of bondage. And they began to make their journey towards a promised land. But in the process, as Moses brought the law down, as uh, they, they began to wander, the people grew weary and they began to be bitter and they began to complain and they began to have doubts and unbelief as to whether they'd ever get there. And many of them began to cry out, let's go back. Let's go back to slavery. Let's go back to Egypt. We're never going to get into this land of promise. And the Bible says that they wandered in a wilderness for 40 years until finally God raised up Joshua. As Moses died, Joshua was called by God. And eventually Joshua called the people of God to continue to move forward. And they got into the land of promise. It wasn't without war. It wasn't without fighting. It wasn't without taking walled cities and killing giants and taking one step at a time to inherit this land. But God used Joshua. And the early church fathers loved this story because it was a reflection of uh, God taking us out of captivity, taking us out of bondage, taking us out of slavery to sin into a promised land. And what the law or Moses could not do, Joshua or the translation of that name in English, Joshua is Yeshua in Hebrew, but the translation in modern English is actually Jesus. Joshua is a picture of Jesus taking us into the land of promise, taking us in to the new birth and to spiritual freedom and to the forgiveness of all of our sins and into God's grace. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And there's so many things that we can see in here. But one of the things that we have to see is that there are battles in our Christian faith that there's times where we do have to fight, that our faith in Christ is not a passive faith. In fact, uh, in, in uh, church theology, there are uh, kind of two 
levels of the church or two stratums at the church that, that theologians kind of uh, look at. And they talk about the church triumphant. And the church triumphant is the church that has gone before us, the church that has graduated to, uh, uh, to heaven and seated uh, with God. And as, as Hebrews 12 says, they're looking on from heaven and a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on. The church triumphant, they've received their inheritance. And then there's what theologians call the church militant, that we're still engaged in battle, that we're still in a war, spirit versus the flesh, that we still are fighting to move into all of God's goodness and all of God's promises. And one of my favorite church fathers is St. Augustine. And I think I like him so much because he was so honest. He was so transparent about his own personal struggles you'll read uh, the, the, one of his great writings, the book of Confessions, you'll see that he uh, talks about how he struggled with his own lust and struggled with his own sin, his own evil, and the things that he uh, wanted to do he couldn't do. And he kind of spoke like Paul said in, in, in the book of Romans, that he kept doing the things he didn't want to do and kept not doing the things he should do. And, and uh, as he talked through this uh, confession, he finally began to see where his victory would come. And it was reading in the book of Romans one day, and he began to discover that it was only through Christ that we can be free. And as he embraced and took on uh, uh, Christ and received his nature, he began to walk in this freedom and began to be delivered. And yet he said, even in that deliverance, that even in that walking in new freedom, that there was still a war. There was still a battle, even as a believer. And he describes this in chapter 15 in his book, The City of God. He says this, Just as we have descended to this evil state through one man who sinned, that being Adam, so through one man who is also God, of course, being Jesus, who justifies us shall ascend that height of goodness. No one should be confident that he has passed over from the one state to the other until he has arrived where there will be no more temptation, until he has achieved that peace which is his aim in the many varied struggles of this present warfare in which the desires of the body oppose the spirit, and the spirit fights against the body's desires. And he goes on to say, and yet this evil state is better than the earlier condition of life. For it is better to struggle against vices and to be free from conflict under their domination. Better to war with hope of everlasting peace than slavery without any thought of liberation. He basically said, listen, you can kind of give up and not fight the battle. You can kind of just give in to this world and give in to its vices and give in to all of its struggles and just let it come and walk in freedom. But ultimately, you'll be brought under the domination. Ultimately, you'll be captive to those sins and they will destroy you. And we've all been there on some level. But he says, I'd rather fight. I'd rather war this present warfare knowing that it is a battle and find freedom in Jesus Christ and walk in that freedom. And I can say a hearty amen to that, having been through that. And so we've got this battle that we're all engaged in. And I want you to see three things that Joshua had to acknowledge. Three real areas that God called Joshua to bring his faith to bear in order to get to that promised place, that promised land. We're just gonna read a few verses and then we're gonna comment on each of these three things. Joshua 1 says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. 
Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend, and it begins to describe the boundaries. Verse 5, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. And I will never leave you, or nor, nor will I forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right, to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate in it day and night so that you'll be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God began to speak about three stratums in Joshua's life, his past, his present, and his future. How many have ever heard the popular uh, notion today, live in the present? We've all heard that, right? You just need to live in the present. I'm going to suggest that we've got to look at all three. We've got to look at our past. We've got to look at our present. We have to look at the future that God wants to get involved in all three levels, our past, our present, and our future. And if you don't deal with your past, your present will be right. If you don't deal with your present, you won't really be able to acknowledge the future. God's interested in past, present, and future. In fact, as we celebrate the mystery of our faith at the, uh, at the receiving of the Eucharist today, at the, at the conclusion, right before we receive it, we'll, we'll, we'll say this together, Christ has died, past, Christ is risen, present, Christ will come again, future. There's a past, there's a present, there's a future in everything that we are in our faith. And the first thing that God dealt with, with uh, Joshua is he said, just listen, Joshua, you're going to have to deal with your past. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. As if he didn't know that. Of all people, Joshua knew that Moses had died. He was Moses' right-hand aide. And yet God said, listen, my servant is dead. In other words, this is past. He's not coming back. Joshua loved Moses. Moses was his hero. This was an incredible man of faith. This was a guy that had met with God, brought down the Ten Commandments, brought down the law, heard from God, and, and now the man was gone. And here left was Joshua. God said you need to forget the past. You can be thankful for it. You can have fond thoughts of it. But if you're going to walk into a new territory, you've got to move forward. Joshua didn't have a lot in his past to really take courage in. In fact, I read a study the other day, or it was actually an article talking about uh, some of these big companies that, that have succession planning, and they, they, uh, they, they kind of figure out what they need to do to have a new CEO or a new president take over from either a past or retired president of a large company. And they said there's five major things that, that every company has to do to have great succession they said, number one, that new incoming leader must have a strong family history. Well, Joshua did not have a strong family history. He was the son of none. You know what none means? It means fish. <laughs> he was the son of a fish. 
I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't a, a noble uh, family. He wasn't the son of a lion or the son of a bear. Or, he was a son of fish. And his father was not a great and noble man. His father was a slave. He was captive. I'm sure he had slavery and captivity mentality. And somehow, even though Joshua didn't have a great and wonderful family history, somehow God still loved him and chose him and thought he could use him. How dare God believe that he could use us in spite of a bad family history? How many know that's good news for some of us? (laughs) That no matter where we've come from, who we are, where we were born, what family we grew up in, that God can still work through us. The other thing they said about a, a great succession plan is the new leader should have a powerful resume of effective leadership with others. And Joshua did not have such a resume. He was simply an intern for Moses. He simply took orders. He was not a leader. He was not given great leadership responsibility other than just take orders from Moses. And he was very happy to do that for 60 years. Third thing they said about a great succession plan is a new leader must have been a part of a culture of growth and success. And I remind you that the children of Israel wandered around for 40 years in the desert and never got to their destination. They did not have success. They did not move forward. It was complaining and bitterness and hopelessness and are we ever going to get there and problems and issues and earthquakes and people dying. And so Joshua had experienced firsthand failure for 40 years. They said the fourth thing is the new leader must have a very good ability at building consensus with his team. (laughs) Well, Joshua was not a great consensus builder according to history. He was one of 12 spies that went in to spy out the land as Moses instructed them. These 12 spies went to the promised land to check it out and see what was there. They came back, and out of the 12, there were only two that believed that they could take the land. Joshua and Caleb. They came back and they brought a good report and said, yes, we can do it. There are giants. There's walled cities. It's an amazing land. It's filled with milk and honey. We can do it. But there were 10 others on the team that said, this is impossible. Yes, it's all those things and more, but it is impossible. And somehow Joshua and Caleb could not get the other 10 to build consensus to say we could do it. So they weren't great at building consensus with the team. And finally, the fifth thing is the new leader must reflect youthfulness, vibrancy, and an openness to new ideas. And Joshua had none of that. remember hearing a young preacher about 20 years ago preaching on the Joshua generation. This young preacher was talking about how the God was done with the old men of God. God was raising up a young and a new leadership who were going to take over in the church. And what he didn't know is that when Joshua finally took over from Moses, he was 80 years of age. He was not a young and vibrant, fresh, new leader. He'd been around for 80 years. Everyone knew this guy, you know, and God said, I've called him. I've called Joshua. And he didn't have a new idea. He had an old idea. Let's keep going. Let's get in to the promised land. God used Joshua in spite of his past, but he had to get past his own 
passed. He said, God said, Moses, my servant is dead. You know, I think one of the most important things that we can do in dealing with our past is really looking at the issue of forgiveness. I think one of the greatest things that holds us back in moving forward in our past is unforgiveness. It just seems to be a subtle thing that just kind of grabs our soul, sometimes begins to infiltrate and cloud it and poison it until we kind of get stuck where we are because of unforgiveness. And if there's someone here that has never dealt with unforgiveness, you've never had a struggle with unforgiveness, goodness, I'd love to be in your shoes. I'd love to find out what that was like. Never to have anyone offend you, never to have anyone do something that you felt was wrong. But that's none of us. We all go through different areas and meet different people and go through circumstances where we have to struggle with this issue of unforgiveness. And sometimes we think, well, no one really knows about it. No one really knows. I don't like that person. I hate them, and I want them to die. No one really gets that. So as long as I don't say it, I don't tell a lot of people, everything's okay. And yeah, it's not going to affect a lot of other people, but it will affect your own soul. It'll affect your own heart. It will poison your heart. I remember about two years ago, I was really focused on moving forward in my faith and just wanting to take new ground and growing. And, and it seemed like I just, just kind of got up against a wall. And uh, no matter how hard I wanted to move forward, it just seemed like I just kept hitting this wall. And I knew I was hitting this wall because there was just a lack of joy and a lack of faith. And, and it just seemed like there, there was just nothing good happening. And I was, I was fighting discouragement and depression. And there were just so many things that were uh, warring in my soul. And, and yet my, my heart was open to God. And I, I wasn't sinning. I wasn't backslid. I was, I was really pushing into the Lord. But it just seemed like I couldn't move forward. And finally, in, 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 in just a prayer, and it was really more like a cry than a prayer. I said, God, what's going on? What is going on? And I just sat there in, in, in peace for just a moment. And then all of a sudden, I just, I just had this impression, there are two people that you are holding unforgiveness towards. You will not forgive them. And I knew exactly who they were. And I began to, well, God, you know what they did. They, and that, and, and they did this, and that, and God didn't respond. And I just sat there, and all of a sudden, I felt myself with a desire to kind of inspect my own heart. And as I got honest with God, I began to see, you know what, there were things that I did in this, these relationships. It wasn't on them totally. It was as much, maybe even more, on some level, with me. And so I asked God to forgive me for my part in the broken relationship. And then I took another step that I knew I had to take, and I wrote a letter to both of them. Both of these men, I, I asked their forgiveness. I didn't talk about any offense that I had because I'd forgiven that. I just said, forgive me. I pray for you. I love you. I thank you for all that you've done in my life. And I just speak blessing over you. And I would love to tell you this in person if I would be given the opportunity. And in that, I had two different responses. The first response was very positive. The man wrote me back and 
said, I want to meet with you. I'd love to talk to you. Thank you that you don't know what that letter did for me. And I had a wonderful lunch with that man and had a great, great time of reconciliation. And the love of God and the Spirit of God was so present in that place. And I remember walking out of that meeting oh, just filled with encouragement, filled with faith and just new joy in my life. It was a wonderful, wonderful moment. The second person didn't respond the way I'd hoped. He didn't want to meet. He questioned my sincerity. And, you know, on some level, that was fine. I really didn't blame him. I had hurt him in some areas. I had wronged him in some areas. And so I just said, you know, that's fine. Maybe it's not for this time. Maybe there's another time that we'll be able to reconcile. But my part is done. I've done what I know the Lord told me to do. And I can't tell you what that did in my soul as I released that unforgiveness. There was a liberty and there was a freedom and there was a joy and there was a lightness and the heaviness had left and I just felt like I'd put the past past and we'd had a burial of that past. So I don't know what's in your past. I don't know what you fought. don't know what you've dealt with. don't know what's going on. But I would encourage you to let Moses die, to let the past go so that you can move forward. The second thing that God spoke to Joshua is to Joshua. He said, be strong and very courageous. And he didn't say it just once. He was speaking about his present. He said, right now, you need to be strong and courageous because there's something that you're going to need to do. There's, 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 there's some steps that I'm going to have that you need to take. And really what God was doing was rebranding his present identity rebranding who he was as a man, helping him to think not like a slave who constantly was kind of uh, moving back in fear, but as a leader and as a man who would have strength and courage. You know, as they went into this land or as they proposed the idea of going into this land, there were lots of reasons uh, that the, the 10 spies gave that they couldn't get there. They said, well, there's so many people. There's people everywhere. I mean, there's, there's huge armies. And, he's, and then he said, it's not just one nation. There's four different nations of people that we'll have to conquer. And then he said, the cities are not just kind of laid out in the prairie somewhere. These cities are walled, fortified cities. Chariots can literally uh, go a, a, around in circles on the walls. They're so wide. These are huge, fortified cities. And then they said, and there's giants there's big people in the land. We can't do this. And, and you know what? Every one of those were positives. The fact that there were a lot of people in the land was actually a good thing. You don't want to take over a land where no one wants to live. The fact that everyone wanted to be there was good. You know, if you're going to go occupy land and take over land, you want to go a place where people like to be, where you're going to want to be for a while. And the fact that there were fortified cities turned out to be great as well because all of a sudden they take those cities and now they have a secure city. They have a safe place to dwell and to live. And really the fact that there were four different nations and not one giant army was good too because they, they could do it in steps. They could do it in bite-sized chunks, one nation at a time, as they began to move into this territory. And even the fact that there were giants in the land is good because you kill one giant and word spreads. They killed a giant. These guys aren't afraid. 
But God had to rebrand Joshua's identity so that he could move the nation of Israel forward. I want you to see that, uh, just run through these scriptures, we'll put them up real quick, but there were seven different times that God told Joshua, be strong and courageous. Deuteronomy 31.6, he said, be strong and courageous. Deuteronomy 31.7, be strong and courageous. Deuteronomy 31.23, a few verses later, had to tell him again, be strong and courageous. Joshua 1.6, be strong and courageous. Next verse, be strong and courageous. One, two verses later, 1.9, be strong and courageous. Verse 18, be strong and courageous. Seven different times that we know of in the Scripture that God said, be strong and courageous. I think God had a message for him. I think it was a message he needed to hear. But sometimes God has to continually speak to us again and again and again to get it into our hearts, to get it into our minds, to renew us to who we are and what he has called us to. We need to think the thoughts of God. We need to allow God's ways to become our ways and his thoughts to become our thoughts. And you know how we know that Joshua got it in his life? Because we read a few chapters later in Joshua 10.25, it says, Joshua said to them, speaking to the people, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. You see, we know it's gone from God to us and then through us when we begin to speak it out. When we begin to declare what God has said about us to others. And there's times we need to declare in our prayers, in our faith, who we are, what Christ has bought for us, the price that he's paid for us to be saved and to receive his grace and his love and his forgiveness and his goodness and, and all of the exceeding, the Bible calls exceeding precious promises. We, we need to declare those things. We need to be bold to declare who we are and what God has said to us. I remember when we moved to Dallas, my youngest son is here this morning, Brock, and we moved to Dallas about eight years ago, and we got to Dallas, and we were planting a church, and uh, we'd been sent out from a wonderful church to, to help us, and we got to Dallas, and we're uh, starting this church in a city where we didn't know anyone, a community where we didn't really know a soul, and I remember coming from Tulsa at, you know, I was thinking, oh, it's going to be good, Dallas, and then I got to Dallas, and I began to drive around. And I began to see the city, and all of a sudden, the city turned into a giant in my eyes. It got so big. I mean, it was sprawling, and there were people everywhere, and the city that we were planning a church in was all white-collared, you know, business people and movers and shakers and aggressive, and everything was new and big and shiny, and the downtown was sprawling and skyscrapers, and, and then I began to hear about all these, you know, some of them I knew before, but I began to hear about more and more churches like T.D. Jakes, you know, and, and, and Ed Young Jr., and, and, and Dr. Swindoll, and all these great churches. And I thought, what am I doing here? Why did I come here? I should have gone to Muskogee, right, honey? Because <laughs> then it wouldn't have, wouldn't have felt like a giant. But I was in Dallas. And I remember I was just, I was intimidated and I was fearful. And I thought, this is never going to work. And I remember driving down the freeway one day. And I just had the Spirit of God rise up inside of me. And it was almost like God just challenged me, speak to this city. I felt that, speak to this city. 
And I finally did. I just said, Dallas, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of you. Jesus loves you. And I'm not here to reach the whole city, but with God's grace and power, we're going to reach some. And I just began to declare my faith. And I didn't do it just once. I did it. If I did it once, I did it probably 50 times in the next year. Just God is bigger than the city. Things will intimidate us. Challenges that God puts before us will sometimes seem difficult. It may be raising our children or having a family or maybe encountering difficulties in our marriage. There are so many different levels and ways that sometimes the battle rages so strong that we are intimidated and fearful. But we've got to declare that God is with us. We've got to be strong and courageous. And then the last thing that God spoke to Joshua, he said, listen, Joshua, then you will be prosperous and successful. He spoke about his future. He said, I've got a future for you that's good. You're going to be prosperous and successful. You're going to lead these people into this new land. He said, if you'll keep the book of the law in Joshua 1.8 on your lips, meditate in it, think about it day and night. And then if you're careful to do everything, if you act on it, you're careful to do everything that's written, then you will be prosperous and successful. And don't, don't get caught up in the words prosperous and successful. It's, these aren't financial words. Sometimes we get caught up in, you know, well, I just the word prosperous means your soul is well, that you've got joy and health and life in your soul, that you get up in the morning and you look forward to your day, that you've got beautiful relationships, and yes, that God provides and meets our needs and gives us our daily bread, but it's, it's more than just kind of having a bank account or a nice car or a nice house. It's having a prosperous soul and a life and being successful. If you want the perfect de- definition for success, it's found in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. God, when your kingdom comes to earth in my life, when your will is done, then I'm successful. Whatever that means and whatever that looks like, that's success in God. And God said, I've got that for you, Joshua. God wants us to have a vision for the future. He wants us to see something that maybe we've never seen before. He wants to give us new land and new territory, new opportunities. God is a God of the future. He wants to bring his kingdom to bear in our lives We've just got to see it. We've got to take time to listen. Got to take time to let the Spirit kind of incubate in our hearts and show us what's next, maybe in our marriage, and our relationships, and our work, and our job, and our church, and our community. And as God begins to speak and shows us the land to come, we've got to believe that he'll take us there. But there will always be steps involved. You'll never get there by waiting. You'll never get there by just praying. It's all a part of it. You'll never get there by just kind of hoping or that maybe someone else will do for it, or a check will come in the mail, there's going to be steps that you're going to have to take. It's going to have to be something you have to move out of the ordinary and the everyday into something new and something extraordinary. How many have ever had a, a life experience that became something that has spoken to your soul for years after? Maybe good or bad. Maybe something that you look back and say, man, did I ever learn something from that? We'll never do that again. We'll never go there again. We've all had those. 
Or maybe we've had a good experience and you thought, wow, that really did something for me. It kind of helped me to have a, a confidence moving into the future that, and, 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 and God, as you look in the scripture there, he memorialized certain things and certain events that he took time to say, stop here, memorialize this event, set out rocks, set out stones, bring a memorial, build an altar, remember this day. And I had one of those days when I was 17. I didn't know it would be a God experience. And really and truly, uh, there wasn't a lot of prayer or spirituality involved in this at all. But as I look back today, year after year, this experience has done something for my strength and my confidence on some level. When I was 17, I grew up in Canada. Some of you know that. And uh, Canadians have this problem. They, uh, they have snow 11 months out of the year. So we, we, we have winter for 11 months, and then we have spring, summer, and fall in, in July. And <clears throat> not true, but pretty close. So, so we get really good at, at uh, winter sports. That's because that's all we have to do. Uh, we invented the, uh, the sport of curling, which really started on ice and Canadians throwing rocks to try to get it in a circle. And these rocks turned into little curling, you know, things, and we got brooms and we sweep and <laughs> Yeah, that, it's, that's our excitement in the winter. That's the stuff we do. Uh, we play hockey, and, and, and hockey is the best sport. I think we all, well, I'm aware of that. And, and the re, let me tell you why hockey is the best sport. Because in hockey, you can get in a fight on the ice, drop your gloves, hit a guy in the mouth as many times as you want, and, and this is so cool. The referees will surround you and watch. I'm not kidding. They will watch until they're fought out. And then as soon as they're kind of punched out and they're tired, the refs will go in and break it up. And then this is what they do. They don't, they don't expel them from the game. They don't get a suspension for three months. They go into a box to rest for five minutes. <laughs> they let them out again, and they're welcome to get in another fight. Hockey's wonderful. So... So we, I'm into these sports growing up, all these winter sports, and I fell in love with one of the winter sports. I fell in love with skiing. And I started when I was like 10 or 11 years old. And, and as I got more and more into skiing, I got into uh, freestyle skiing, acrobatic skiing. And I just, I, I fell in love with it. And so you've probably seen it uh, on TV in the Olympics every year. They have these guys that go off these jumps and try to do flips and hopefully try to land on their skis. And so I was in on that in the very beginnings of freestyle skiing, back way before it was in the Olympics. And, and so I was uh, participating in a uh, jumping event on a weekend, 17 years old, and I wasn't very good. I was uh, risky, but I wasn't very good. I would never medal. I was usually like out of 20, 25 competitors, I'd be 10th or 12th or 15th. I was never that great, but I, I enjoyed it. I had fun. And so I'm in this event, and there's always three jumps, and you get, you know, the, the, the best of three jumps. So I'd, we'd done our first two jumps, and the judges told us, the three that were left, myself included, that we were in the running for the gold, silver, and bronze medal, that we were the last three jumpers because we were the top three. I had never even come close to being in the top three. I'd had two really great first jumps. And so here I am with an opportunity. In my mind, I'm thinking, I could win a bronze medal. Because these guys were way better than I was. 
They were great jumpers. They had perfect form. I would just get up there, you know, just trying to land, and they were just so perfect in the air, and I thought, oh, I can win a medal. I can get a bronze. And then something kind of just rose up inside of me. Why not win a gold? Why not go for a gold? And then I answered myself, because you will not be able to do it, stupid, because you have no skill to win a gold. You're not as good as them. This is not even a, a, a possibility. And then I thought about the one thing that the judges and the crowds loved more than all the skill in the world, and that was how high you went off that jump. And as I began to consider that, I thought going high off that jump takes no skill. All it takes is a little bit of courage or maybe stupidity. Because if you would walk further up the mountain from the in-run to that jump, the further you would go up, literally every couple feet would add miles per hour onto your in-run, which would catapult you further off that jump. It really took no skill. You just had to go further up. And I began to think to myself, you know, I may never have another chance to win a gold. This may be my only opportunity ever in life, and I am going to seize it. My heart was racing. I was so afraid. I thought, there is a chance that I won't survive this, but at least I'm going to go out trying. And you know what I did? I took about six or seven steps, simple steps, up that mountain. Now, there were two other guys standing there, and they both looked at me and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just going to go from up here. And they said, you're crazy. No one has ever gone from up there. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go from up here. Well, you, you're, you're going to die. And I said, well... Maybe. So they did their jumps. They did fine jumps. And it was my turn. And every eye was on me. I was so afraid. I was a new Christian. I'd been saved maybe a year. And I just began to pray in tongues as hard and fast as I could, just out loud. And I looked down at my skis, and I had two scriptures on my skis. Roman 8, I remember one of them was Romans 8, 31. If God is for me, no one can be against me. And I'm going to quote that verse. If God is for me, no one can be against me. Not that God had any part of this, because I'm sure he didn't. (laughs) But I began to go down, and I remember as I got closer and closer to that jump, I remember being tempted by the devil to ski off into the trees and never come back. But I didn't listen to the devil. I just kept on going. And I went off that jump, and I went so high. I did a fully extended back layout flip, which I'd done before, but I'd never done it this height. And as I came around for my landing, I'm ready to land. I've done my flip. I'm ready to land. And I'm still looking down on trees. And I'm looking down on the crowd. And I'm I'm 20 feet above the snow. And I'm like, I'm ready to land. And you couldn't hover down. And I learned something that that afternoon in skiing that I'd never learned in physics class. And that is that once rotation begins, it does not stop until impact. You just keep on rotating. There's nothing you can do to stop rotation midair. And so if you ever get into skiing and want to do acrobatics, you want to do singles and doubles and triples. You don't want to do one and a half because that's, that's painful. And I did a one and a half. I landed flat on my back, just boom. Every bit of oxygen left my body. I, I was totally out of breath. But something amazing happened, unexpected by all. As I hit that snow, it had snowed all night the night before. It was literally a soft, powdery snow. 
I hit, my skis stayed on, and it popped me right back up onto my skis. Now, I am shocked, and so is everyone. I'm just like, pop, pop. And I stop at the bottom, and everyone is looking at me, including the judges. They'd never seen that before. And one of the judges said, uh, Blaine, we have never seen that. What, what, what was that? And catching my breath, I said, that is my one-and-a-half back slapper. Thank you very much. It's a true story. They threw up nines, a nine-and-a-half, and then one ten, and I won my first, and I might add my last gold medal ever in freestyle skiing. Yeah, thank you. There'll be a little autograph area up here after. So uh, it was so funny the next weekend. They were coming up saying, hey, you going to do that back slapper again? No. No, I'm giving it a break. Uh, in fact, I think I'm going to retire. I'm the best I can be. I've got the gold. Why, why go on? But that became, it became an experience in my life that I have never forgotten. And it was almost like it happened on some level because God wanted to remind me that sometimes it's just simple little steps of courage and strength to the place that you want to go, to the aspirations that you have, to the vision that God's put in your heart, to the, the, the things that, that are stirring in your soul, that sometimes if you'll just take some steps, that staying there isn't enough. You have to take some steps. The steps of the righteous are ordered of the Lord. Not the running leaps, but just the simple steps of God. And so I close by asking you this, what is your next step? What's the next step into the life of God that he has for you? What's the next step into the land of promise that he has for you in your relationships, in your career, in your health, in your marriage, with your kids, whatever it may be, what is God's next step? And if you'll take that step, he'll give you another one. We'll stand to our feet. We are going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And as we pray this prayer, we see the past, the present, and the future, even in this prayer. We see that it calls us to ask God to forgive us for our trespasses as we forgive others. We see our past being dealt with. We see the present. Lord, give us our daily bread. Lord, sustain us in this day, in this moment. And we see the future. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. Let's bring our faith to bear on our past, on our present, and our future today. I'm going to invite our servers to come. We're going to receive the elements of communion today. We're going to prepare our hearts to let his body and his blood do the work that they were intended to do, to bring forgiveness, to bring grace, to bring healing, to bring recovery to our brokenness, He was broken that we might be whole. Let's say that prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Deliver us into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. 
We're reminded of it today as we take these broken pieces of bread and we drink from this cup. It's come from the earth, from the work of human hands, and we bring it to you as an offering. And God, we invite your presence into this moment. We celebrate that you've chosen this meal not only to make us one in Christ, but also one with each other. So we offer these gifts, and we offer ourselves as a single living act of praise. If you would lift the bread. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. Father, may you now, through the Spirit, sanctify this bread. Let it be for us the body of Christ as we celebrate the great mystery which he left us in an everlasting covenant. In this bread, Lord, we welcome you, Lord Jesus. As we lift up the cup, we're reminded in the same way, Jesus, after supper you took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Father, we trust by you, your Holy Spirit that you take and make this cup holy, that it becomes for us the very blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at whose command we celebrate this Eucharist. We welcome you, Lord, into this cup. Father, grant us that we are nourished by this body and blood, that we may be filled with the Spirit, brought together as one in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And together we declare the mystery of our faith. Christ is dying. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This morning, if you're a believer, you are welcome at this table. No matter where you've come from, no matter what church you belong to, what faith background you have, this is a table for all who believe. Behold the Lamb of God, slain for the sin of the world. Come and partake of eternal life. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.